Hi, everyone. Just before we get going, I want to remind you that everything we talk about and discuss should not be considered as investment advice. The purpose of what we talk about on Catherine Murray Media and Markets on YouTube, as well as Catherine Murray in conversation with on my podcast, should be viewed as informational and entertainment purposes only. Please definitely do your own research, your own homework, and definitely consult an investment professional before making any investment decisions. And also to note, some of us might hold positions in some of the stocks uh, that we discuss. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to our first Stock Talk Live. I am Catherine Murray, your host and anchor, and thrilled to be with... um, Rick Rule, who is very much in demand, uh, of course, from his Sprott days. He was the founder of US, Sprott U.S. Holdings and now founder of a Rule Investment Media. Rick, great to be able to see you and do this together. Thank you so much for your time. Pleasure, Catherine. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. So, so much to discuss. And for our new viewers, but I think there's a lot of people who know you and, and are listening because of that. Um, our focus today is going to be on the commodities and uh, precious metals and whether or not we're in a bull cycle. We've got tons of questions, whether they're stock-specific story questions and or industry. So, Rick, I want to get from your, your perspective, the macro view here. Um, are we in a commodity super cycle? And if so, which commodities? I believe we are in a commodity super cycle. It's important for your younger listeners to know, those who haven't been through a commodity super cycle, that you can have dramatic cyclical declines in a secular bull market. It is common, frankly, in super cycles, precious metals or natural resources for equity index declines of 30 or 40 or 50% uh, in a bull market. So when I say, yes, we are in the beginnings of a commodity super cycle, uh, understand what that means. These things are cyclical and they are volatile. So don't believe it's gonna be stair steps to heaven. The nuanced answer, of course, is that although we're in a commodity super cycle, the different commodities will behave differently. I expect, as an example, the precious metals to lead in the next little while for reasons that we can discuss later. Uh, The other thing is that a super cycle can be derailed for two or three years uh, and still be intact. It is my belief that the cycle is a little ahead of itself because I believe that the economic strength that we're seeing worldwide is due more to excess liquidity, artificially low interest rates and quantitative easing than it is to any real health in the global economy. So it wouldn't surprise Hmm. me if uh, we had a bit of a false start in commodities. Looking further, however, uh, we're gonna have uh, supply constraints in the commodities business that will give real strength to the underlying prices. We needed to begin to invest in copper exploration and copper development 20 years ago to avoid the supply constraints that we're gonna be faced with four or five years from now, demand notwithstanding. So I'm afraid that's a long-winded answer to a question Mm -hmm. that was a nuanced question. Well, no, it's it's a great answer and I appreciate it. You know, I think that there's been so much underinvestment in a number of commodity areas, specifically what we're seeing occur in oil right now for various political reasons, obviously, and um, the environment, there's been a lot less investing. And now we're really seeing the price of oil climb is up, I think, 2% today. So when you think about the areas of commodities that we've underinvested in, you've obviously mentioned copper. 
Um, so it sounds like that's a key area for you probably to be investing in. But what, what else? Well, oil and gas, uh, particularly for your Canadian audience, an absolute no-brainer. Um, the truth is that despite the fact that uh, perhaps Mr. Trudeau doesn't like it, and certainly Greta doesn't like it, uh, billions of people around the world do like it. And we are uh, under-investing by uh, about... <laughs> 35 or 40 billion dollars a year in sustaining capital investments in the oil and gas business which means that almost no matter what we do we're going to we're going to experience sh uh, supply shortfalls uh, places like the western canadian sedimentary basin uh, where you have access to capital you have all kinds of expertise and you have political constraints are probably the best places in the world to invest in oil and gas and when we think about um, the price of oil right now and, and what you've just described, I mean, where do you see it going if we can ask you for a bit of a price target here? Yes, of course. Your audience wants a simple declarative statement, which is great, except they don't work. Um, what you do really is investors speculate in a range of probabilities. There is no certainty. So I don't know where the oil price is going to go. What I do know is that we consume about 90 million barrels a day of oil. The International Energy, International Energy Agency, pardon me, uh, suggests that the fully loaded cost to produce a barrel of oil, including cost of capital uh, and prior year write downs, uh, is somewhere between fifty and sixty dollars a day. So right now, the companies are only earning their cost of capital. There isn't much left over. The consequence of that is that they're deferring sustaining capital investments, particularly because shareholders want returns that may or may not be available at these oil prices. And what mm -hmm. that means when you defer sustaining capital investments is that you uh, defer your ability to produce. Mm -hmm. So we will see the uh, spot shortages, uh, mm -hmm. which means we will see higher prices because Greta notwithstanding, people want to drive. Right, they, they do. And I think some people are actually starting to realize that as they look at the gas prices. Um, Rick, outside of um, oil, and when we think about where we're going to see shortages, what are some of the other areas? <laughs> Your audience will hate me for this. Coal. Um, huh. the fact Why is coal? That, Where's that uh, demand coming from? Uh, the highest demand year for coal that we've ever experienced as a globe was 2020. Uh, the demand occurs because when people flip a toggle switch on their wall, they want the lights to go on. Uh, 1.2 billion people in the world have no access to electricity whatsoever. Catherine, they want to live like you and I, and that requires electricity. Whether we like it, whether the big thinkers like it or not, uh, coal is one of the cheapest forms of baseload power in the world. So we will begin to experience shortages in the coal business, which means that we'll experience shortages in electricity. Hmm. We have underinvested in uranium, uh, a topic that people don't like to talk about. We've underinvested in phosphate, we've underinvested in potash. We have underinvested in nickel sulfides, although there's lots of nickel laterites around. The mining of those really is unsustainable from an environmental viewpoint. So, really, in many, many, many commodities, uh, we have underinvested, and the chickens will come home to roost. Whether they come home to roost in the next two or three years is a different question. But looking further out, I would suspect that uh, supply constraints will put a very firm undertone to commodity prices, uh, almost irrespective of demand. My suspicion is that the demand will pick up five years from now too, but that's only a suspicion.
Mm -hmm. um, and Rick, just to pick up on coal, um, you know, to your point, viewers will, you know, have a difficult time listening to that. And, and so will many governments around the world, um, certainly in the more developed nations, that is for sure, and, and ones that have joined the, the Paris Accord. So which countries, you know, from a political perspective, are really going to go down the path of investing in coal? Uh, those countries where they want electricity to work, uh, an example would be Germany, uh, which in their wisdom banned nuclear power, uh, preferring to rely on solar where the sun doesn't shine. Uh, the consequence of that is that in order for the lights to come on in Germany, they had to import nuclear power from France, not their own nuclear power, but somebody else. And they had to burn lots and lots and lots of coal. Uh, you cannot have it all. Uh, the Chinese, despite the fact that they're signatories to the climate accords, have suggested that carbon output should be measured per capita, not in terms of gross output. And they continue to build coal plants, coal plants apace, as does Indonesia, India, uh, Sri Lanka, all kinds of places that have citizenry, Catherine, that would like to live the way that you and I do, but as yet can't afford it. Mm -hmm. I know that's going to be very, very unpopular with your listeners, but you know, my job isn't to win a popularity contest. My job is to look at the utility afforded by various investments and mm -hmm. rate them. Uh, it also doesn't mean that coal investment is riskless because there are some societies that believe themselves to be rich enough uh, that they can, like Germany, uh, choose to cause the lights to go on with solar when the sun doesn't shine. Mm -hmm. it'll, it'll be interesting to see whether consciousness uh, overwhelms physics over time. Right, right. and we, we've gotten a glimpse of that in the United States already this past year, did we not? We have, we have. Uh, these will <laughs> all be interesting questions. Absolutely. Um, let's actually get to some of the questions right now. And, and these are kind of questions from a bit of a macro perspective. Um, this is from Nick, ESG and diversified base metals is the focus. Question, with all the attention on ESG, can you ask Rick what diversified base metals company gives you the best exposure to battery metals of copper, nickel, and cobalt? Uh, some of the diversified names appear to be BHP, Rio, um, Anglo-American, and Glencore. Well, it's interesting that he prefaced it with ESG. Uh, the company that gives you the best exposure relative to market capitalization is Norilsk, which is a, a Russian company. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how that fits into somebody's ESG picture. Uh, as you can guess with my answer to Cole, my outlook with regards to ESG varies somewhat from other people. Uh, there is no politically correct mining business. Uh, there are questions uh, about the way that Glencore, as an example, acquired some of their properties with regards to uh, Rio Tinto, as an example, they blew up an Aboriginal heritage site. If you hedge a question by prefacing it with ESG, uh, it would be useful if someone would define their ESG matrix for me so that I could answer the question correctly. <laughs> Do we have an obligation as a society to produce commodities at a price level that the two and a half billion people, poorest people on earth can afford? Uh, where does that fit into ESG? Is the E part of ESG simply eliminating the export of deleterious materials from a mine site? Or 
does it involve producing those materials in countries with stronger environmental standards rather than weaker environmental standards? Mm -hmm. If we enforce environmental standards, our environmental standards, do we consign places like Guinea, the Gambia, and Congo to perpetual poverty? This idea that we obviate the ESG uh, equation to Glass-Lewis and the big thinkers probably understates the importance of the question. I understand that. And that side of the equation probably doesn't get talked enough about. It's not as popular. I would agree. Uh, it makes the question very difficult to answer because ESG is such a nuanced topic that you really can't define those companies in a one-size-fits-all answer. Mm -hmm. I, I would suggest that if the answer really involves around the effect that uh, industrial materials, in particular battery metals, are going to become an important, more important part of the environmental mix, then you have to look at the most efficient producers of those commodities, which would be Norilsk. If you go to Norilsk, that is going to violate somebody's ESG standard. So we're involved in chasing our own tails, Catherine, mm -hmm. with regards mm -hmm. to answering that question. Understood. Um, another question, this is from Babak, um, prospect of generators versus traditional explorers. Uh, the question is, ha you have previously referred to the greater success ratio of prospect generators versus traditional explorer companies. For a retail investor with a long-term time horizon, what are some tools that you can utilize to identify a viable prospect generator company? The, for those of your viewers who don't know what a prospect generator is, uh, that's a company that uses their financial acumen and technical acumen to develop uh, geological theories, stake the theories, uh, and then farm out the heavy lifting of exploration, the capital expenditures, to a third party in return for a carried interest in the property. Hmm. That goes to the fact that uh, when I was in university, when many of these rock packages were being formed, uh, about one in 3,000 mineralized anomalies became a mine. So for the traditional Explorco, the value proposition is taking a one in 3,000 chance for a 10 to one return. That makes the lottery look like a good deal. Uh, the idea behind a prospect generator is that you don't dilute your interest in the company by financing your property interest. Rather, you farm out the property interest and maintain your interest through no dilution in the intellectual capital. Hmm. The metric that would be used to analyze prospect generators is simply the amount of third-party money that they get spent on their properties relative to the amount of own money that their own money that they spend generating the properties. What you want is a company that develops good enough geological theories that they attract lots and lots and lots of other people's money relative to the money that they spent themselves. You want to avoid dilution at the company level and you want to maximize third-party expenditure on your projects. And Rick, I'm not particularly familiar. I'm glad you went through the definition of it and what it actually is, but um, are there many companies out there to invest in? Um, yeah, there are, it's, it's, a it's a style of speculation that involves a lack of emotion. It doesn't go to narrative. So it's unsuited to most people. Most people would rather be excited than wrong, um, rather than numerate and rich. 
Um, these companies also don't get followed by Bay Street or Wall Street because they don't dilute. It means they don't finance. And because they don't finance, uh. it means they don't pay corporate finance fees. And because they cor don't pay corporate finance fees, they don't get covered by research. <laughs> so one needs to do the research oneself. One needs to be prepared to be bored for long periods of time. Boredom suits me, by the way. It's the antidote to terror. Uh, and one needs to be numerate uh, rather than narrative oriented. So assuming that you are a very boring nerd who just wants to get rich, it's a wonderful place to be, but most people aren't that. Hmm. But Rick, are they, these are, what, what kind of size publicly traded companies are these? Or are they mostly private? Uh, no, they're most, well, I, should, I shouldn't say that. There are lots of private prospect generators. Many highly successful prospectors, as an example, are prospect generators. But there are probably 30 public explorcos in the world today hmm. uh, who would define themselves and logically be defined as prospect generators, some of which are relatively large for small cap companies. I'm thinking of companies like Altius Minerals. Uh, or EMX royalty, uh, which are prospect generators. Uh, many are much smaller. Okay. And are they mostly trading in Canada or is it the United States? No, mostly Canada. Okay. The United States, for all practical purposes, doesn't have a domestic exploration industry. Um, okay. We import our opportunities from Canada or Australia. Okay. Uh, un understood, just to see where we can go and look in, at some of these that would be traded. So, um, and and get, getting back to kind of the commodity cycle, there's a question here um, on commodities. And um, the question is, I'm wondering if you and your guests can cover what causes rising commodities to stall out? Will they ever reverse? Also, maybe you can explain the commodities market me mechanics is it uh, large corporations? Actually, this is interesting. There's a lot of different questions here. Um, let, let's just start with the first one, which is um, what, what would cause a commodity cycle to stall out, a rising commodity prices? The cure for high prices is always high prices, Catherine. Parliament and Congress need to learn that. Similarly, the cure for low prices is low prices. Let's examine that. In a low price environment, consumers have no need to substitute. Uh, or to conserve. The low commodity price increases the utility of the commodity, so demand for it increases naturally. At the same time, that low commodity price gives no incentive to producers to produce. So a circumstance that sees rising demand and falling supply always sees a rising price. That's the way it works. Similarly, high commodity prices uh, reduce demand. Uh, fabricators find a way to use less. They find a way to substitute. Uh, at the same time, they produce tremendous incentives to produce more, and they lower the capital cost uh, associated with people that produce. So high prices stimulate supply and reduce demand. And a circumstance where you have rising supply and falling demand means that you have falling prices. Repeat after me. In resources, mm -hmm. you will be a contrarian or you are going to be a victim. The cure for low prices is low prices. The cure for high prices is high prices. Markets always work. They just take a long time and they're messy. Hmm. And, and so the follow-up question is, will they ever reverse? And the question is, of course. it sounds like absolutely. Yeah. Of course. I mean, the, so. the most foolproof way to invest in mining is to find a commodity where the utilization of the commodity is essential for the ascent of humankind. Copper would be an example. When that commodity is priced in the market below the market's cost of production, 
meaning when the market is in liquidation, when the outlook is the worst, one of two things happens. Copper becomes unavailable and the lights go out or the price goes up. Uh, it can take some time to do this and making your brain overwhelm your heart mm -hmm. is always an interesting challenge. But the cure for low prices is always low prices and the cure for high prices is always high prices. Mm -hmm. And Rick, this is um, same same uh, person, Steve, asking questions about understanding the commodity markets. And I think this is really important because when we see volatility in commodity prices, you know, we sit there and wonder, who is it? Is it the quant funds? Is it the hedge funds? Or do we actually see the large corporations that have their own trading desks and have to hedge their own positions in the market? So that that's kind of what this question is, is driving at. So question is specifically, um, can you explain the commodity markets uh, mechanics? Is it large corporations actually going in and buying commodity contracts to be delivered in the future? Or can this commodity rise be manipulated somehow by market participants? It's just very odd how all these resources have all in tandem moved up together. Uh, the answer to that is yes and yes. Uh, a market is many things. In the futures market, most of the volume takes place between buyers and sellers who actually intend to deliver or, or actually intend to accept delivery or are hedging positions. There is enough liquidity in these markets that there is plenty of room for financial interests too. Uh, speculating that the imbalance, the temporary imbalance between supply and demand can be mediated or uh, arbitraged by speculators. In addition to that, all markets that I'm aware of are at least in the short term manipulated. If markets hmm. as big as the US 10-year treasury market or the LIBOR market can be manipulated, a thin commodity market can be manipulated at least in the short term very, very easily. If you look as an example at the silver market where there is alleged to be broad scale manipulation, you have a futures market that often trades in a day a hundred times the inventory available for good delivery on the exchange. That's not in a year, that's in a day. So a circumstance would occur where, or could occur, pardon me, where a, a trading desk or some consortium uh, established a, a long ladder tradition in the futures, uh, pardon me, position in the futures market, leveraged, uh, and then attempted to manipulate the futures prices by either buying or selling a very large amount of silver in the overnight market in silver when the market was the thinnest, trying to drive the uh, spot market in a way that would influence in a very outsized fashion the futures market. So theoretically, if someone were, as an example, short two or three billion dollars in leveraged positions in the futures market, uh, and that person or group of people caused 50 or 60 million dollars worth of silver uh, to be sold overnight uh, in the spot market where the volume was the thinnest, their goal would not have been to maximize the proceeds of the sale in the spot market, but rather to profit in an outsized fashion from their leveraged futures contract. This is a fairly sophisticated form of spoofing. And although it's very illegal, it takes place on a daily basis in a variety of markets. I'm less concerned, I'm less um, convinced that there has been long-term systematic um, manipulation of commodities markets. That would take more capital and more skill 
than I think the alleged conspirators uh, have. That's fascinating, Rick. Um, but you, you, you talk about it being in other markets, so other markets around the world, because that doesn't fit with the SEC. Well, I, you know, the SEC does what comes easily. Uh, the idea that the SEC is going to actually uh, investigate groups that are difficult to investigate, the Will-O-Wisps, denies uh, what the SEC is about. Uh, Bernie Madoff stole $18 billion, it's alleged, that's what he was convicted of, uh, for uh, a substantial amount of time, uh, he was president of the regulator. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other words, they hired the wolf to guard the sheep. Uh, one thinks, too, to the SEC performance around Enron. As far as I know, before the Enron happened, fraud was illegal, uh, and fraud was the allegation. The SEC's response to that was to institute Sarbanes-Oxley, which cost global shareholders $100 billion a day to address a problem that cost investors $80 billion dollars. Once the idea that people regard the SEC as being protection is hopelessly naive. Hmm. The only protection that individual investors have is their own common sense and hard work. What the mm -hmm. regulators exist to do is create the aura of protection to make the political class and the people who benefit from confidence, including the securities industry, seem more believable. Hmm. Your only protection is yourself as an investor. Any thought to the contrary is, it isn't merely naive, it's harmful. Mm -hmm. Rick, I, I wanna just go down that path for one second because I think that, you know, certainly what we've seen with, uh, with COVID is that more and more people are at home, they're trading, they're getting, getting involved with investing. Uh, you, we all know the story, uh, the Robinhood uh, investor, and, um, you know, I think that's a great thing in the sense that you know, people can do their own homework and participate in the capital markets and hopefully do well. At the same time, if people hear what you're saying, you know, the people who haven't done that yet are, are saying, well, this is exactly why I don't participate in the market. So what do you say to them? I think it's great. Um, I, I think like all young investors, they're going to get spanked. When I look back at the mistakes that I made investing in my late teens and early 20s, uh, I'm amused and horrified. Uh, and this generation will experience the same sort of circumstances, SEC or no SEC. But the truth is that this generation of investors is, despite their naivety, the best informed generation of investors that's ever been. Uh, but anything that you learn to do, I mean, remember when you first rode a bicycle, uh, there was a couple scraped knees and a couple scraped elbows. Uh, you're learning to ride a bicycle. And so mm -hmm. in a metaphorical sense, your portfolio is going to get scraped a couple times. That's the way it's worked. But make no mistake, the tools are available. And Catherine, you're one of the tools uh, to empower this generation. It used to mm -hmm. be that information came down from on high. The government gave it to you. We know they lie. Uh, academia gave it to you. We know their biases. The big brokerage firms gave it to you and their research had to do with what they wanted you to buy, not necessarily what was good for you. Mm -hmm. Now information comes from everywhere, 100,000 points of light. Some of them are muzzle flashes, uh, but others are broadly distributed forms mm -hmm. of information. And you need to have less knowledge now. Uh, yes, 
Google is censored. But the truth is that places like Google and Wikipedia are wonderful sources of information. Your listeners can go to Edgar. They can go to CEDAR. They can go to a million places and do their own work. This is the best informed and the best armed generation that has ever existed in investing. But investing, as you learn to do it, is messy. They're going to get hurt. They should get hurt. They'll be better for getting hurt, despite the fact that they'll hate me for a year and a half afterwards. <laughs> this is normal and natural, and it is wonderful. Yeah. And, and in terms of Edgar, you're, you're talking about, and this is, I think, really important for any new viewers um, and listeners to, to know about, that you, know, you can go on now and download the 10 Qs and the 10 Ks, the financial reports of these companies, and years ago, when I was in equity research, um, I think you had to subscribe. You had to be able to have access to it. And that's exactly what you're talking about. But now it's free. Absolutely. I remember not that many years ago, Catherine, uh, getting 10 years annual, pardon me, five years annual reports and five years quarterly reports, taking the staples out of them. Your younger viewers probably don't know what a staple is mm -hmm. uh, and laying these things out uh, on the conference room floor. They wouldn't fit on the table. And uh, looking at the progression of the interplay between the balance sheet and the in income statement with a felt pen uh, across five years of annual reports, uh, a, a youngster, even I, in fact, never mind a youngster, somebody can do that today on Bloomberg or Icon, and they can do what took me six weeks, and they can do it in five minutes or less. Uh, these are wonderful tools, uh, mm -hmm. but they need to be used. Right. So in other words... If you do your homework and you work hard, you can get around some of the aspects of the investment industries. <laughs> all of them. All uh, of them. All of them. You just, you need to know that occasionally you're going to make mistakes. Mistakes yeah. are, the price of fail, uh, are the price of success. Understood. Um, Rick, another question here is, um, what's Rick's assessment of the current political risk in Mali as it pertains to beta gold and other miners operating in that region? Uh, I think there is political risk uh, in the whole Sahel, the Sahel being the sub-Saharan uh, region in Africa where Christianity and Islam collide. Uh, the insurgents generally dislike hard targets, uh, and the Fakola mine uh, of uh, B2 is a hard target, meaning there's lots and lots and lots of troops there. And, and unlike other parts of Mali, uh, the troops around Fakola are paid. So it's a hard target. Uh, political risk is a very, very big topic. And one focuses normally on political risks one doesn't understand. Uh, I would suggest that the political risk in Mali is probably overstated uh, because it's a culture that's foreign to us. And the political risk in places like California and British Columbia are probably understated because uh, we're more familiar with the culture. Uh, when we think about a risk in California or British Columbia, we're looking at our own greed and larceny in the mirror and we fear it less. Just to pick up on that, what, what specifically are you referring to when you look at BC and California? Legislation. Um, the worst experience with political risk I ever had in my life in terms of loss of wealth happened in the People's Republic of California. We made a gold discovery, unfortunately, seven miles on the wrong side of the California-Nevada line. And it took us 13 years and $16 million in bribes to put that mine in production. Not efficient bribes, like in Congo, but rather campaign contributions, which are, of course, bribes. Uh, deeds in lieu, 
okay. at the point in time when we should have been able to put the project in production, the gold price was over $600. At the time we were able to put it in production, the price was under $300. And we were, of course, burdened by the time value of money for 13 years. It's odd that having gone through that circumstance, people describe Congo as risky and California as riskless. Uh, my own uh, ESG determinant is that money stolen from me by white men in English, according to the rule of law, is somehow less gone, isn't something that makes sense to me. Uh, political risk is very much uh, the aggregate level of risk and how much you have to pay to experience it. And when you invest then in commodities, uh, and you do around the world, um, how then do you incorporate political risk? What, what's your matrix almost for looking at political risk? First of all, you accept it. Uh, you understand that the job of the legislature is to steal, uh, to redistribute. And the question is, how much will they steal from you? Uh, and when will they steal it? And in what fashion will they steal it? What you learn is that countries that can't get any worse seldom do, despite the fact they have the best, rep the worst reputations. Countries that can't get any better seldom do either. Uh, the more a country perceives itself to need mining, the friendlier it is. So you have a society that doesn't need mining, uh, that needs revenue, and they all need revenue. Uh, the easiest place to get it is, of course, from those evil foreign miners who have what you want. You know, when most of your listeners probably believe that government is a good thing. Uh, they believe that it either does or should uh, fulfill their expectations of society. Very few of your listeners uh, are comfortable with the fact that poll after poll after poll suggests that if there wasn't an enforcement mechanism for raising tax, that people wouldn't pay. But what that means is that taxes are by definition extortion. <laughs> the question is who's going to get extorted, by what measure, and by how much. That's the nature of political risk. If you, believe, if you begin by examining uh, government for what it is, which is to say, uh, a mechanism for uh, extortion and redistribution, then you begin to assign the values associated with it rationally rather than by narrative. But at the same time too, not all governments have that as their goal. Pardon me? Not all governments have that as their goal to extort and redistribute. I've only been on Earth 68 years. I'm not familiar with one that doesn't follow that norm. I'd love to hear what. Well, you're right. Lichtenstein. Lichtenstein doesn't. The, the prince in Lichtenstein believes that his citizens are customers rather than chattel. Um, I've lived in three countries in my life, and I can tell you that uh, every one of those governments, by popular demand, believed that what they did was steal from one constituency. Uh, in order to redistribute to other constituencies. I've never seen a government whose primary business wasn't redistribution. It might have been popular redistribution. That's a different question. Uh, is redistribution popular? Of course, for those who receive. What about, now we're going down one path, but I'll just add one more, one more point and then we'll go back to silver. But, Great. Um, but what about during Reagan? And that, 
I, th I think that most people agree the, that the, that we want to have some social systems put in place and that there is a bit of a cost to that. And so rather than it being extortion and redistribution, are, it's those making it all questions. work. Those are different questions. The answer to the second part of the question depends on whether you're being taken from or given to. Uh, the popularity depends on whether you're a net beneficiary or a net loser. With regards to Reagan, uh, I think some of the rhetoric was good. That was the last politician I ever voted for. But if you read a book called The Triumph of Politics by David Stockman, uh, what you will see is that Reagan only barely succeeded in reducing the growth of government. He didn't cut government at all. He didn't limit the growth of government relative to the growth of uh, GDP. Mm -hmm. His narrative was good, uh, but the reality of the Reagan administration was that the Reagan revolution was a lie. Okay. All right. like, all, like all subsequent and prior administrations. And that is a whole nother political conversation <laughs> <laughs> that's going to take more, more prep on my side, that's for sure. Um, when it'll we do think of it, it'll, it'll, cost you, it'll cost you hundreds of viewers too. Um, oh, I'm, I'm you, not worried. About, when I, you get I, away from narrative to numeracy, uh, people yeah. lose interest very quickly, especially if they're offended. Well, yeah. And, and you know, People do get offended these days for sure, but what I'm really trying to do is, um, you know, have conversations. I, I want Wonderful. I want us to understand all all the sides and have everybody have a voice. So, Great. yes. Um, so you know, and I appreciate learning different perspectives. Um, but Rick, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, Silver Two because um, Wolf Bro is asking. Uh, he'd say, he said, I'd really like to hear Rick's take on the forces at play for the price of silver, short positions, and physical inventories. I love the silver business. I, I, I have to admit it. I have a fondness for silver. So let's, let's disclaim bias first. Uh, okay. In prior precious metals bull markets, the first mover has been gold because gold moves based on fear, a primary human emotion. In the middle part of the market and towards the latter part of the market, Silver traditionally has moved further and faster than gold does. And I think we're coming to the point now in the precious metals bull market where gold begins to reassert itself. And I think we're to the point now where silver begins to outpace gold. I hope so, at least. Yeah. Um, uh, and it does this for a lot of reasons. Uh, one, simply because people expect it to, because it's done that historically, which is to say it's a factoid. But there's a different reason too. The unit value of silver is lower so that it's a, a more democratized way of playing the precious metals narrative. As an example, in the real heartland of silver investing, which is South Asia, Bangladesh, Pakistan, India, Sri Lanka, there's a cultural predisposition to silver, uh, which has to do both to history and to the part that to South Asian peasantry, when they store the wealth from a good harvest, uh, know not to store it in rupiah because their government will steal from them by inflation, but they also can't afford the unit cost of gold. So more times than not speculate in silver. Uh, so I'm really looking forward, hopefully I'm right with regards mm -hmm. to timing, to come into that part of the market uh, in the middle and towards the end of a precious metals bull market where metaphorically silver really shines. The most volatile aspects of all, of course, are the reasonably high quality silver equities because they're leveraged to the price of silver. And my experience has been when the generalist investor tries to crowd into the silver equity space, that the market capitalization simply isn't big enough to accommodate them, which is a wonderful circumstance. My friend, Doug Casey describes it as 
trying to siphon Hoover Dam uh, through a garden hose. Uh, I recall early in my career in the 1970s, the share price of Coeur d'Alene mines going up from 10 cents to $65, not a typo. Wow. Uh, I remember my own personal experience uh, in being an early financier of both Silver Standard and Pan American, watching them go from 72 cents and 50 cents respectively to $45 in the six year time frame. Uh, these circumstances don't occur too often, uh, but believe me, Catherine, in your own portfolio, they don't have to occur too often. <laughs> They're really pleasant events. So, I mean, are, do those opportunities exist right now? I think they do. Uh, I, I don't think opportunities like 10 cents to $65 will be very easy to find. You'll notice I picked one stock out of the 50 or 60 that existed at that point in time. But the truth is that even the very high quality silver equities, uh, the large cap equities, the sort of Pan Americans and Hotschilds and Wheaton Precious of the world uh, give you outstanding, outstanding market performance in a silver bull market, because when the generalist investor crowds into the space, there isn't enough space for he or she to crowd into. Hmm. And we're and we're not there yet. Obviously, the generalist not, is not in. We're, we we are not. We're picking up interest in physical silver. Uh, I would suggest partly as a consequence of the Reddit crowd, uh, but partially also uh, as a more general interest in precious metals. And I think the metal has to drive the equities in this circumstance. It always has in prior markets. And um, when we think about investing in silver and or gold, do you, it sounds like you, you buy the equities, but do you also buy um, the actual, like an ETF that would represent silver or gold or do you buy physical gold? What do you do? Uh, disclosure of conflict. I'm the largest shareholder of Sprott and we manage some physical trusts, which are not ETFs. I believe them for US taxpayers to be superior vehicles because they're taxed at a different rate. Uh, they also, that is to say the trusts relative to the ETFs only invest in physical. They don't uh, accept deposit receipts or delivery receipts, meaning that in a financial panic, which is precisely when you wanna own silver, you never find yourself in the position of being an unsecured creditor of a third party. So I don't invest in the ETFs. I either invest in physical which I can hold in my own hot little hands uh, or in a proxy that only accepts physical as the collateral for the proxy personally. That may be a little paranoid, uh, but one buys silver and gold so one doesn't have to worry. And the idea that I would introduce a new worry into the chain of title uh, mm -hmm. just is not my idea of a good time. <laughs> And um, while we're on the topic of looking at, you know, silver and gold as we know, whether it's store of value or for protection or hedging or what have you, or a bull market, um, where do, I'm just curious, where are you these days as it relates to cryptocurrencies? Um, I'm less knowledgeable about cryptocurrencies. Let's start with that. Um, I love the technology. I love the fact that you don't have to trust a bank, you don't have to trust your government, that you have to trust the affected community. Uh, I love the frictionless nature offered up by cryptos and I love the anonymity offered up by crypto. Uh, I'm an investor in distributed ledger technology around the titling, the efficacy and the transfer of gold and silver. 
Uh, with regards to the untethered cryptos, the Ethereums, the Doge, if that's the right word, the Bitcoin, uh, I was a speculator uh, as a fortunate consequence of knowing Tika Tawara, who talked me into speculating. Hmm. Those assets gave me so much gain so quickly that I decided to take it. Uh, if the price of something goes up where you don't understand the reason for it to go up, you aren't richer, you're simply more involved. And so I decided to take my money off the table. Not a comment on the asset, but rather a, a comment on my own lack of understanding of the technology and the dynamics of the markets behind it. Mm. I will mm. say that what, yeah. what troubles me uh, as a value investor uh, is that value has to do with utility. I understand the utility of precious metals uh, as mediums of exchange that are simultaneously stores of value, where the utility might be in religious iconography or jewelry or some other thing like that. I get too that with some of the cryptos, part of the utility is the network, which is to say the more people that use it, the higher the value is, like a telephone. One telephone isn't worth a damn. A billion telephones where you can phone each other, now that's worth something. And I mm -hmm. get that uh, the network conveys utility on mediums of exchange. But it's interesting to me that the uh, volatility, and particularly the upside volatility in cryptos, which delights speculators, reduces the crypto's utility as a medium of exchange. This very volatility means, Catherine, unless you denominated your whole life in Bitcoin, that if you used Bitcoin to buy a few bags of groceries or a car, you wouldn't actually know what you paid for the car, nor mm -hmm. would the merchant know what he or she received. So it's interesting that the part of the transaction that thrills the speculators diminishes the utility. Understood. And, and some would say that I've heard or read about that um, we are so early on in the development of Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies that we have to figure out what the actual value of that is. And until we do that, we've got this volatility. I think the market will do that, Catherine. I hope it will. Mm -hmm. If you regard cryptos, uh, at least in some of their applications, as new currencies, I'm thrilled because I'm a consumer of currencies. Uh, I spend euros, I spend US dollars, I spend Canadian dollars. And the idea that there would be a whole bunch of people slaving away to develop new currencies, which delivered more utility to me as a consumer, I think that's fantastic. Mm. I hope that there's 10,000 of them. Uh, if there were, uh, 9,995 would die normal and natural deaths. And the five that resulted would be absolutely superb mediums of exchange and stores of value. Mm -hmm. I, I, I love the science fiction concept of file, P-H-Y-L-E, which is to say that people, uh, rather than aggregating inside geographic borders or according to political confines, uh, would self-aggregate according to value and utility to each other. Hmm. And the idea that the, um, the trust in the distributed ledger comes from the verification of the community itself rather than from a third party, say a bank or a government, uh, who you don't necessarily trust, makes that ultimately a better currency, if the currency defines its community well and serves its community well. Hmm. Interesting. Um, that's pretty fascinating. I hadn't heard of it in, in those terms or thought of it in those terms. But we probably, more conversation about it. What were we going to say? No, I, I, I look forward to that. I. Uh, 
I have been interested in markets of all kinds uh, and yeah. the risks associated with markets of all kinds for a very long time. Uh, one of the uh, amusing or unamusing things about being me is I don't care much about popular culture or sports or opera or any of those things like that. <laughs> but I'm fascinated with topics involving markets. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of which, let's get your thoughts on um, uranium. We talked a little bit about it, but um, what are your thoughts on uranium? Uh, again, sadly nuanced. I know you want simple declarative statements, but I'm fresh out. Uh, okay. I, I think the uranium price itself goes higher, probably much higher. Uh, because of the electrification of the world, not just Tesla's, but those 1.2 billion people that you and I talked about earlier mm -hmm. that don't have access to electricity, but are going to get it in the next 10 years. Mm -hmm. We're going to need more electricity of all kinds, Catherine. We're going to need nuclear. We're going to need solar. We're going to need wind. We're going to need nat natural gas. We're going to need it all. Why, though? Because some people would say that the demographics don't warrant it. Uh, I suggest that those people go to Malawi. Uh, where 50% of the population is gaining an income but doesn't have access to electricity. Uh, yes, for sure, uh, the growth in electrical demand may falter in places that are already rich, but that isn't where the story is. Uh, the story is in the bottom demographic of mankind, the two or three billion poorest people on earth who aspire to your standard of living and increasingly are developing the ability to get it. Even in rich countries like the United States, uh, nuclear power generates 15% of total electricity supply and 20% of baseload supply. Now, uh, the most recent engineering study that I have suggested uh, is that when redundancy, which is the amount of surplus power available, falls below 3% of network needs, you have blackouts, okay? Mm -hmm. So let's say, for instance, that uranium went away five years from now. Uh, uranium is 20% of base load supply. If 3% redundancy isn't sufficient, what happens if 15% of supply goes to supply heaven? There's no power. So when your audience, your American audience, wonders if the uranium price is going to go up, the audience needs to ask themselves one simple question, because if the price of uranium doesn't go up, there won't be supply and the lights will go out. What's more likely, the price going up or the lights going out? I think the answer is fairly simple. The International Interagency, remember we uh, referred to them earlier in the oil and gas discussion, suggests that the fully loaded cost to develop a pound of uranium, including prior year write downs and cost of capital, exceeds 50 US dollars a pound, maybe 60 US dollars per pound. So the industry makes the stuff for 50 bucks and they sell it for 30 bucks. They lose $20 a pound. And they do it right now 65 million times a year. Being miners, of course, they try and make up these losses on volume, which doesn't work. Uh, one of two things will happen. The price of uranium will go up to the point where the industry earns its cost of capital, or the lights will go out. Those are the two things that will happen. That's the bullish news. The bearish news is that there is so much capital in the market, so much speculative capital in the market, that the price of junior uranium explorers uh, is substantially higher substantially mm -hmm. higher than the net present value of those companies as enterprises, which is to say the stocks, at least the small stocks, are hopelessly overpriced, even while the commodity is hopelessly underpriced. It's a paradox that I have seen <laughs> seldom in 45 years of speculating in resources. What about some of the larger players? I think some of the larger players are fairly priced. Uh, my favorite would probably be Kazataprom. Uh, which is the largest, lowest cost uranium producer in the world, and not coincidentally, 
the, con the company with the best supply pipeline. Now, some people don't like it because it's from Kazakhstan and they don't understand Kazakhstan. Uh, I can only say if I had my choice between permitting a uranium project in Kazakhstan or New Mexico or Nebraska, I would take Kazakhstan personally. Uh, I think Cameco is probably fairly priced, not cheap, cheap perhaps to what it will be worth when, if uranium sells for $60 a pound. That's what I'm not, wondering. Not cheap with regards to uranium at $30 a pound. And I would also, this is not a recommendation, but I would also suggest to your viewers that they um, research CGN mining uh, on the Hong Kong exchange, which is responsible for producing and importing uranium into the People's Republic of China, which is the fastest growing uranium market in the world. Interesting. Um, one more question on, on copper. Um, what's your view on Copper Mountain? Uh, the people who started it are good friends of mine, and I have been familiar with that asset for a very long time, and I'm a little familiar uh, with the two new development assets in Australia. I don't like tier three deposits, uh, and the Copper, the Copper Mountain deposit is a tier three deposit. Uh, which is to say low returns on capital employed, uh, lousy place on the global cost curve. Uh, because it's Canadian copper, Canadians will like it and the stock might do well. Also, ironically, the least efficient copper producers are the guys that enjoy the largest um, margin increase when the copper price goes up. Uh, that notwithstanding, uh, you can take away some of my upside if you take away most of my downside. In industrial materials, I mm -hmm. want to be in the best quartile worldwide in return on capital employed, uh, and I want to be in the lowest quartile worldwide uh, in terms of all-in sustaining capital cost. In addition, with things like copper, uh, because you can easily be early in the commodity cycle, mm. I like very large and very long-lived reserves. Uh, specifically, I, I like to see... Uh, in excess of $10, $10 billion in recoverable in situ resource. Uh, and Copper Mountain, despite its many charms, it's only 90 miles from Vancouver, as an example, on a highway, uh, doesn't meet those criteria. So I personally don't own it, despite the fact that I hold the management team uh, in fairly high regard. Got it. Um, what about Ivanhoe Mines? Um, here's another question. Mm. Stock's done well, continues to meet its milestone goals. Uh, Ivanhoe is due to start processing their stockpile of high-grade copper ore in June, July. I'm really interested in Rick's comments, views on Ivanhoe's prospects. Um, and uh, this person has in, invested it, in it because of your previous appearances on TV. So. Sure, sure. So let's get conflicts out of the way. Uh, I'm personally friendly with Robert Friedland, who started the company. I have a very large personal position in Ivanhoe. Uh, it, uh, since it's low in 2017, has risen from 63 Canadian cents to about $9. So I, I suspect that the big money has been made in Ivanhoe. That's a breathtaking return. This is, I think, the most important copper discovery on the planet in the last 100 years, uh, mm. which is a, a bold statement. The uh, mm -hmm. Average reserve grade at Kakula is in excess of 5%. The average mine grade worldwide is less than half a percent. So this is 10 times the average grade worldwide. 
Make no mistake, this is not a cheap stock. Uh, this is a company that just entered revenue generation and has an 8 billion Canadian dollar market capitalization. They also have three tier one world scale deposits, the Plat Reef, which is a, pla a platinum palladium deposit, world-class in South Africa, thus far undeveloped, Kapushi, which is the highest grade zinc deposit in the world, and Komoa Kakula, which I believe is the most important copper discovery on the planet huh. in the last hundred years. As your viewer suggested, uh, they are now uh, processing uh, copper stockpiles. So what I think you'll see in the next three months, uh, because they don't have to mine this stuff to process it, they've already mined it, which is to say the cost associated with mining is already behind them. I think you'll see incredible cash generation in the next six months. Uh, and you'll see it in a company where the market doesn't expect very much cash generation. Are there political and social risks in the Congo? <laughs> Absolutely. My comments about British Columbia and California notwithstanding. Uh, when I started investing in the Congo in 1995, was in the midst of a, a civil war where 2 million people died. Uh, when things go wrong in Congo, they go really, really wrong. Hmm. But back to your point about the cash flow, that it sounds as though it's underestimated by the street. And I'm wondering if the stock is also underloved by the street, even though it's had a huge run. You know, we always have to think about money flow and where some of the big institutions are. Is this or will this be a go to name? as people catch up to this trade? I don't think it'll ever be a go-to name. Uh, okay. I think the fact that they are joint venture partners with the Chinese means that many Westerners won't trust them. The fact that they're in Congo means that many people who, how could you say this? Many people prefer to invest in Western cultures. Uh, I believe if you invest in resources, you have to go where the resources are. If you were looking at Ivanhoe, the most people do, which is only with regards to Komoa and Kakula, it's probably fully priced. Uh, I add back in the Plat Reef with over 50 million contained ounces of platinum and palladium uh, and Kapushi, which is the highest grade undeveloped zinc mine in the world. And I see the price having the chance to go higher, but I'm also cognizant of the risks. I should say to your audience, by the mm -hmm. way, so as not to misinform any of them. Uh, yes, I'm a large shareholder in Ivanhoe, but I have sold enough stock that I have recovered all of my capital. So in gambling parlance, I'm now playing on the house's money. <laughs> uh, I can afford to be courageous because I have uh -huh. my own money back in my pocket where it belongs. Understood. Um, actually, and just to kind of stay on the copper theme, there's another question surrounding copper and asking really, what's the best way to get copper exposure? Uh, for most investors who aren't willing to do the work, uh, owning the largest and finest copper companies in the world is the best way to get copper exposure. The BHPs, uh, the KGMHs, mm -hmm. uh, the Rios, the Glencores, uh, for most, the Freeports, I should say, mm -hmm. uh, for most investors coming down the quality trail involves doing more risk, uh, taking more risk and doing more work than they're willing to do. If you want to speculate, uh, I would suggest that you speculate in higher grade deposits, things that can work full cycle. Names would be, as an example, Ivanhoe or Trilogy, names like that. If you are going to come all the way down the quality trail to the copper explorers or the copper developers, uh, not only are you taking risk, but it's incumbent on you to take the time to understand the risks that you're taking. Uh, 
so that you have the ability personally to react. Okay. Most speculators aren't willing to do that. And as a consequence, most speculators should avoid the space. Okay. Um, what about zinc? There's a question from Andrew on zinc and Trevally Mining, if I've got the name correct. Mm -hmm. um, I, love, what are you, yeah. I, I, lo I love zinc. Um, I really do because it's unloved. Uh, I, I love the fact that it seldom comes up in polite conversation, <laughs> which means that I don't have much comment looking at it. Uh, I like Trevally in the sense that if the zinc price goes higher, which I think it will, uh, Trevally's fortunes will improve. But I would give you the same comment with Trevally that I gave you with Copper Mountain. Uh, it's a collection of tier three, tier three zinc deposits. It gives you leverage to the zinc price, but it doesn't give you the operational efficiency in zinc that I would like to see. I like mm. tier one deposits. I like best quartile worldwide and return on capital employed. And I, I like the lowest AISC, uh, which means that I never own the best performers in a bull market because I'm unwilling to take the risks that come with speculating on leverage. And so which, how, how are you getting exposure to zinc if you love it so much? Uh, the only exposure I have to zinc now is indirect exposure. Almost all the good silver companies are actually zinc producers in drag. Hmm. Uh, and some of the major mining companies, Tech Corp in Canada would be an example, are big players in zinc, but not pure players in zinc. There is no pure play in zinc, hmm. which I can buy with a straight face right now. Okay, um, let's just do a little bit of a rapid fire here if we can, in terms of some stocks that people are asking about. Trilogy Metals? I own it, uh, high quality deposit, not in production yet. The risk is capital cost to put it in production and the construction of an industrial road. Very high quality deposit, very well managed. This won't be a mine, this will ultimately be a district uh, and Trilogy controls it all. Hmm. All right, uh, what about America's gold and silver? Do not own it. Uh, I sort of like the people. I sort of like the initiatives. I don't see anything resembling a tier one deposit there. Uh, and so I have about 40 companies, more or less, on my gold and silver developers list. I have all kinds of opportunity without having to go to America's gold and silver. Okay. What about Fission Uranium? Fission Uranium I own. Uh, okay. I think the deposit is a tier two rather than a tier one deposit, but it ties on to a tier one deposit, next gen, which is remote. And I think whoever builds next gen has to build fission and has to take them over. So I own fission. And what about um, Govi X Uranium? Govi X Uranium, Govi. I don't own it. Uh, I have a lot of time for the guy who's ultimately behind it, which is Robert Friedland. It's a large deposit, which I like, but it's a low grade deposit. And it exposes me to a level of political risk in Niger that I don't understand. Uh, Niger pretends to be a country. It's a group of people, many of whom don't like each other, which are confined inside the boundaries which were artificially drawn by European colonizers. Uh, the social and political risks in Niger are thus far undescribable. And it's difficult for me to understand how uh, Goviex uh, or other uh, operators in Niger, other than the government of France, which is currently the most successful operator in Niger, will overcome the capital raising risk and the security risk there. Okay. And I don't think we mentioned I am gold, but I am gold. I don't own I am gold, but my suspicion is I should own it. Uh, they've done a really good job 
of turning around their balance sheet. They're generating a lot of free cash now. The risk will come, of course, with what they decide to do with the free cash. Mm -hmm. Will they find something intelligent to do with it or will they just do something with it? Uh, historically, they have not been the best allocators of capital. I'm trying to be polite. Uh, although the new management team seems like they're much more responsible stewards. It's important that shareholders ask companies to measure every action they take uh, with the company's capital uh, against what would happen on a per share basis to buying back their own shares and returning cash to shareholders. That'll be an interesting challenge for IM Gold now that they're generating so much cash. Mm. Okay, in other words, that they should be buying back shares at some point? Or increasing the dividend. Yeah, okay. Um, and Rick, you know, we've, we've heard a bit about what you, um, own through these questions uh, and we're not doing top picks but you know what else have we not talked about that you are invested in uh, i've been investing in two names in the silver space that north americans hate uh, one is peñoles which is the largest diversified mining company in mexico they control peñoles uh, which is one of the highest grade silver deposits in the world it exposes you to mexican politics which is deteriorating but I think it's reasonably cheap. It's also a very good zinc name. Uh, I, I have also been buying Hostschild's mining, uh, which North Americans don't buy because it's in Peru. And I think that the political situation in Peru is deteriorating too. Uh, Hostschild's traditionally has had challenges with regards to allocation of capital, but I think that their development pipeline uh, bears paying attention to. And I'm a silver bull. You know, I just have to flat out admit I'm a silver bull. Uh, I've also been buying shares of Pan American Silver. Hmm. Um, uh, they missed their quarter uh, for the first time in sort of six quarters, and they got to put in Canadian parlance uh, in the penalty box. This is a very well-run company. Ross Beattie, who was the founder, still controls something like 14% of the stock, which means there's adult supervision present, which I like. <laughs> and they control uh, two very large top tier deposits, which aren't in production because of political circumstance. Uh, one in Guatemala, and I believe that that deposit will return to production in 12 months to the surprise of the market. The other in Argentina, which might take longer, but the truth is that they have a billion ounces, high grade ounces of silver on the balance sheet, which the market gives them no credit for whatsoever. Hmm. Uh, that attracts okay. me. The other names I'm buying, frankly, are so small that I've learned not to mention them uh, in channels like yours that have 30 or 40,000 viewers, because some people, for some reason, think that buying what was a 50 cent stock when it was recommended at 90 cents is still efficacious. Uh, and I've learned just not to do that uh, <laughs> on channels that are as large as yours. Well, thank you for that. Um, and, and Rick, thanks so much for the conversation today. You know, we had a lot of requests to have you on and to provide your insight and, and, and really great responses knowing that you were coming on. So, you know, thank you for, you know, for all of your knowledge and your history and, um, and being with us. Well, thank you for the opportunity. You were referred into me by Eric Zonsherb, which who is of course, one of my favorite human beings on the planet. So uh, I'm delighted that you gave me the opportunity to visit with your audience. Thank you. Well, thank you. And let me just end it on this one fun fact that a viewer sent to us. I hope it's accurate. I did not do a fact check, but here it is. Uh, did you know that Rick Roll was the second most quoted investor behind Warren Buffett? 
that can't be true. Uh, if it is, <laughs> investors are making an enormous mistake. Uh, Buffett's partner, Charlie Munger, should be in second. Uh, yeah, and, we, we and love I, Charlie. <laughs> I should be in nine. I should be in nine hundredth. But maybe the fact that I make so much noise makes me easy to quote. May I don't know the answer, but yeah. All right, Rick, we will leave it there. Thank you so much. And I hope that gave, and I know it did, uh, people a lot of food for thought. I'm going to have to re-listen to this and, and pick up oh, some of the info. Tell me. I forgot one thing, if I may. Yes. Um, any of your listeners who care what I think about their portfolio can find out. If you go to a web form, sprottusa.com forward slash rankings, and list your natural resource portfolio, I'll rank at one to 10 personally, one being best, 10 being worst. And I'll comment on individual issues where I think my comments might have value. That's sproutusa.com forward slash rankings. That's amazing. Is this brand new? No, I've been doing it for about a year. Oh. Uh, I've learned an awful lot about investor behavior. Uh, I, I've learned more than I've been able to teach, I suspect, through the rankings. Uh, but it's something that amuses me and it's, in, it's amused thousands of speculators over the last 18 months. Wow. Well, that's, that's great. It's, it's so helpful and, and for people to have access to you and your knowledge. So I'm sure you'll Pleasure. get, you'll get a lot more hits. Okay. Rick, we'll see you to. later. Thank, Thank you so you, much. Catherine. I appreciate Thank the you. opportunity.